Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. From Backpage, my name is Martin Gregg and welcome to a new episode of Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. This is my conversation with John Carlin who wrote Playing the Enemy, Nelson Mandela and the Game That Made a Nation. John's book was later made into a Clint Eastwood film called Invictus starring Morgan Freeman as Mandela and Matt Damon as Springboks captain Francois Pinar. Much more of that is to come in tomorrow's bonus episode Playing the Enemy is one of my favourite sports books of all time and it's actually one of my favourite books. It tells the story of how Mandela used the 1995 Rugby World Cup as a political tool to help build and consolidate the extremely fragile democracy in South Africa at the time. I'd always had this saintly image of Mandela as this purveyor of goodness and humanitarian values and of course he is all that but this is really a portrait of Mandela the politician, the great persuader if you like. And in that sense, it taught me so much about him that I didn't know before. So as always, we focus on process. We talk about John's audiences with Mandela and how his six years working in South Africa actually informed the book. John is based in Barcelona and if you listen closely, I fancy you might just be able to hear the waves lapping gently on the shore as he talks. Spain's lockdown is obviously particularly severe and it's nice to think about people in that beautiful country beginning to be able to live their lives again. Enjoy. Okay, John, so I'm going to start by talking about the idea for the book, where it came from. Um, obviously, you've lived and worked through so much of South Africa's political and social turmoil, if you like, but the unique angle in this book is how Mandela uses rugby as this political tool to help yeah. bring down apartheid. So I was wondering, how did you alight on that angle in particular as a way to tell the story of this era? Well, before I answer your question, let me just um, correct you a little bit in the sense that he did use um, the Rugby World Cup as a political tool, but not to bring down apartheid. It had already been brought down. It was more to yeah. consolidate what was then still a very fragile newborn democracy, which was still very much under threat. I mean, Mandela saw it as his chief mission as president to lay the foundations of that democracy and, and render it um, sort of quite literally bulletproof in the sense that, you know, in that year after Mandela came to power, there were a lot of stirrings and noises and rumblings from the far right. And, um, and it was very, very important to avoid these people, you know, rising up. And because, you know, given the fragility of the democracy, all it would have taken would be, I don't know, 50 right-wing terrorists planting a bomb here, an assassination there, to reduce the country to chaos. So having made that slight clarification, well, the idea, I mean, I was very, 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 very struck when I saw that game, which I saw on TV in Washington, D.C., actually, where I'd just gone after six years in South Africa. I was posted there by The Independent. And I watched it in a bar where you could have very easily just convinced yourself you were actually in South Africa. I think every, all, all 250 South Africans in Washington, D.C. fetched up at this bar and we watched the game there together. And I was aware as I was watching it, in fact, before the game began and Mandela came out onto the pitch, that I was witnessing something that was far, far bigger than a Rugby World Cup final. I was watching a really transcendental political moment. So that's really lodged itself in my mind and I guess I sort of had a sort of loose 
vague idea that maybe I should write about it, you know, at greater length than in a newspaper article at some point. But then the, the, the critical moment was, was this. It was about four years later, or three or four years later, I worked on a big documentary about Mandela's life, which, was, which came out on PBS in the United States. The idea being to broadcast it when he finished his presidential term in 1999. And we did it, and it was, it was a perfectly good documentary. It lasted two hours. And I, in those days, we had VHSs rather than um, you know, all the stuff that we have today. And I remember I went out with some South African friends for dinner, and they had a babysitter, a woman of Iranian extraction, who stayed behind at home with my friend's kids and watched the documentary. And when I got back, she, she, when we got back to the house, she told me how much she'd enjoyed it, how she had particularly enjoyed the bit at the end with the Rugby World Cup final. And it suddenly struck me that actually what we should have done, we should have been cleverer, rather than doing a sort of straight chronological biography of Mandela, we should have built it much more around that sublime sort of peak Mandela moment. And that night I went to bed, and I remember I woke up at about three or four in the morning, and with absolute blinding clarity, I thought, well, we missed our chance on a documentary. I really should do a book. And that's where the idea absolutely lodged itself in my mind that it was now my destiny to write the book of that event. It's interesting because it's, a, it's an important storytelling technique. I think that if you can find a way to, to box up a story, if you like, you don't have to tell this hugely sprawling narrative where you cover lots and lots of different bases, but you can find one focal point which draws you into the heart of it. I mean, that that's such a powerful point to reach as a, as a writer and storyteller, isn't it? If you can nail that. That's right. So my book was... You know, far from being a biography of Mandela, and furthermore, there's some extremely good ones out there, including his very own autobiographies. I wasn't going to compete with that. But building the book around this Rugby World Cup final allowed me to do was to zero in on the essential genius of Mandela as a political leader, as a great persuader. Do it within the context of a, you know, I hope somewhat suspenseful narrative. And along the way, you know, sprinkle the book with all kinds of you know, historical references and, and historical context and, and Mandela background so that by the time you finish the book, you've had a sense of, like I say, an unfolding story, but you're picking up a lot about the, the history of South Africa and, and Mandela's history too. One of the things that I'm a bit obsessed about is the, the way into books, the introductions to books, and it's something that we obsess about a lot with the, the books that we publish yourself, John. But I wonder about your approach to getting into this book because it is one of the I think it's one of the best opening sections of any any sports book I've ever read because it has you pitching the project to Mandela in this mm. in-person meeting we'll break it down in more detail in a minute but I, I want to ask you how, firstly how much thought went into the idea of entering the book using that pitch meeting as soon as you had that meeting did you come out and think that is my way into the book or <clears> did, it, did it gradually come to you as the project developed no it was it wasn't my first thought after that meeting with Mandela to make that the beginning of the book. And also, it's very important to bear in mind that, as I'm already, I've already kind of hinted, this has been a book that was a long time in the gestation. It was an extremely long pregnancy. If you like, you know, the idea first seeded itself when the game itself happened in, in June 1995, but I didn't actually get around to writing the book till 2006. And the meeting I had with Mandela, which was absolutely critical to the whole project, the one with which I, I begin the book, 
happened, I think it was in the year 2000. So it was still another six years before I, I wrote the first, you know, the very first words of that right. book. And so I, you know, usually the way these, something like that comes to me is by what seems to be some moment of, you know, magical inspiration, but is actually a function of thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about it. And then suddenly the idea crystallizes. And I think that's how it happened. I think, but that only came to me once I really just sat down in front of my computer screen to start to start writing. One of the, the things I'm a real sucker for as well is the opening lines to books. Uh, and you've got a fantastic opening line, which is, the first person to whom I proposed doing this book was Nelson Mandela. Now, mm. To me, that felt like quite a significant statement of intent because immediately that speaks to me of access. You know, you're flagging to the reader that you're in, in direct contact with the main character of the book and um, essentially the book might not happen without him. So it felt like a really strong statement of intent. And what went into that opening line, if you like? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think it's to achieve precisely the effect you just described, to make it clear that this is not somebody who's doing a book based on, you know, archive material, but that I'm writing this as someone who was you know, very much there, if not on stage, certainly in the in, in, in the front row of the, of the Mandela, the Mandela spectacle, the Mandela show, which I was just so incredibly fortunate to, to witness close up. Up for you know five of the six years I was in South Africa after he left jail, and I should say that you know it was very important to me um, indeed to get Mandela's blessing for the book. You know that's really why I went to have that first meeting with him. Um, like I say, I think it was in the year 2000. Because if Mandela had said, you know, no, I don't think it's a good idea, you know, I might have just chucked the whole the whole thing away. But you know, I, I did this long pitch, as I say in the in that in that opening chapter. I had a sense as I was droning on that he was actually just thinking about something else because this was his manner. He had this way of just sort of turning into a sort of sphinx and looking into the distance as he spoke. So he weren't entirely sure that he was paying attention, which was deeply disconcerting. Until I came to the punchline, which I took. A ludicrously long time, I think, to get to the Rugby World Cup final, and he actually interrupted me mid-sentence. He'd been following exactly what I'd been saying. He completed the sentence for me. You know, he told me he'd give me his complete support and blessing for it. And for me, that moment was the equivalent of um, of a football player scoring the winning goal in the World Cup final. You know, had I not had Mandela in front of me, I would have sort of jumped up and started dancing around the room and then probably <laughs> hugging him and giving him a kiss. And also, of course, it wasn't just that I had his blessing, but it was a it was a double whammy in the sense that he was then going to give me time later on to sit down and interview him for the book, which I did a couple of times more afterwards. As it turned out, you know, although I did loads of interviews for the book, it was the couple of interviews I did with Mandela that absolutely formed the backbone of the entire enterprise. I think it's brilliant the way you build the scene and some of the the. the language you allude to there um you know that line mandela sat inscrutable as a sphinx is yeah. a, is a fantastic line and then when you explain about you know building it around the drama of a particular sporting event you get this short sharp nod from him and then suddenly right. <laughs> you know when when you you talk about the final of and then he finishes the sentence and he says the Rugby World Cup and then suddenly his smile lit up the room. So yeah. it's, it's wonderful, but I thought it was, a, it was a great exercise in building up a scene and like putting the reader in the room. <laughs> you must have been very aware of like, you know, the, the non-verbal cues, the body language in, in, in that meeting, uh, because that's a big part of it. You know, I felt that was so powerful. I felt like you could, I was in that room watching him react. And then, mm. you know, the, the, the ice sculpture melts at the end when he gets your idea. So... Mm. Do you go into that thinking, 
And do you go into interviews generally thinking, I need to be very cognizant of how this person is communicating non-verbally? Well, yes. I mean, I think that, you know, I've, done, I've interviewed so many people of so many shapes and sizes over the course of my life. And obviously, one always tries to sort of put oneself in their shoes and try and second guess them and try and, and, try and read in their body language how they're responding to, to what you're saying and therefore from that drawing conclusions as to how you should you know proceed on to the next question or how you should how you should phrase things and you know so but in the case of Mandela you know there, there was no response at all I mean you know it was just like sort of 10 minutes he just stood sat there absolutely stock still he might have been posing for a sculpture or something you know he'd become, he'd become a sculpt he'd become a statue but there again you know, I, I should I should have been forewarned. I should maybe not have been so anxious because having sat through so many Mandela press conferences and having actually interviewed him before before that um, three or four times one on one, I guess I should have been more prepared. But they just felt that I felt that there was just so much at stake, so much riding on, and like I say, getting his blessing and his support that I I was maybe a bit more anxious than I should have been because he did have this manner of, of listening in an extraordinarily wooden way. Like I say, you're not sure if he's entirely with you, but actually he's what he's doing is concentrating to a quite extraordinary degree and um, listening extremely attentively. And then, you know, as you say, that wonderful smile. Mandela had the, the, the most beautiful, biggest, most radiant smile I've ever seen in my life and so to be rewarded with that as well as with the reward the palpable reward of him you know uh, being on my team for this book it was uh, it was a fabulous moment it's interesting you talked about the, the access to Mandela and, and you said you had another couple of sessions with him I think after that that yeah. must have been so pivotal to the book to, to, to get those sessions with him so that you can really direct your questioning uh, based on all the other interviews and research that you were doing for the book to be able to go, go directly to him with the specific queries that I would imagine yeah well exactly well actually in that first meeting we didn't get into the meat of the thing at all it was just a simply it was actually quite a short meeting, as I recall. I mean, certainly not much longer than half an hour. And I didn't even have my tape recorder out. It was just simply, you know, like, a, as I say, a kind of protocol encounter. And it was only after that that I met him twice and I had a tape recorder running. And he, yes, he was, you know, I did loads and loads of interviews, but he was the first person I interviewed. And I didn't interview anybody else until I had those two uh, um, Mandela interviews under my belt and it was that from there that was the kind of I, I used the, the term backbone before if you like he was the main trunk from which all the branches and the leaves uh, right. of the book then then flowed. In terms of like the interviewing scenario going into those two sessions I imagine there'd be a lot of pressure on that because you know Mandela is a cornerstone mm. of the book and you need to make sure that, that you uh, get the material uh, that you want but like I'd imagine you, you have to be very focused with what you're looking for as well because ultimately you want to kind of break new ground you, you want to get him talking about things that he may not have talked about before um, so that you have the freshest of material for, for your story was that the case do you remember the preparation you did for for entering the room with Mandela oh, yeah. on those no, two no, occasions no. well I'm, I'm sure yes of course I mean look I, I can't remember the precise detail but I can absolutely assure you that I I did an awful lot of preparation and a lot of, you know, sweat and um, and toil, try and extract the maximum from impossible. In particular, bearing in mind that Mandela is not or was not someone who liked talking very much about himself. He preferred talking in the first person plural to the first person singular. Whereas I did get some 
anecdotes from him. What I got more from him was, if you like, the the theory, the theory of using the sport as an instrument of political persuasion and, and a sense of, of the context um, of what was going on in South Africa at the time and how important it was to achieve the aim in which he succeeded in that game, which, which was to get the white South Africa and in particular Afrikaners to believe that he was their president too uh, and thereby defusing, which he did, defusing right there any possibility that they might not might have lingered of some kind of a you know white right-wing uprising it was in it was in those general terms you know the the particular details and the anecdotes mm-hmm. of the stories i i got that i got a lot more of those from from other people although he did remember particular incidents i mean i remember him telling me one thing that he enjoyed doing was sort of telling stories sort of against himself it was it was it was it was, it was something that he did you know, in, in other circumstances too. So I remember him telling me how shortly before, very soon before the Rugby World Cup, he went to address a political rally in a part of South Africa where there'd been a particular amount of violence against his people, his African National Congress people, and how he turned up wearing a Springbok cap, and how initially people booed him for saying, this this cap, this is our pride, we must support the Springboks. And there were I'm not saying the whole crowd booed, there were about 20,000 people there, but some did. And I remember him telling me this story with absolute delight. Um, just found it hugely funny that there, there was Mandela, a living legend, and his own people booing him. But I remember also the satisfaction with which he told me that by the time I finished the speech, I got them, John. I got them. I got them on my side. <laughs> What was he like as a, an interview subject? I mean, was he somebody that you had to warm up and get into the flow of? Or, or was were these stories just, you know, like, like a tap? Were they ready to go when, when, you, when you put the questions to him? Well, like I said, he wasn't someone to, to, to feed you um, too much in the way of anecdotes. You know, he spoke more in, in, in broad political <laughs> terms. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in the, in the various interviews I did with him before, for example, I did the first interview that he did after becoming president with a foreign journalist. That was, that was me in May 1994. Yeah, but actually, come to think of it, he did sort of warm up a little bit um, towards the end of, of that particular interview, which is not, you know, entirely related to this book, although everything about Mandela is. But I remember there was one moment during the, that interview I did in May 1994 with him when a lady came in and brought him, brought us um, some tea, and it was a white lady. You know, bear in mind that we just had the transfer of power from, you know, apartheid, all white, to now the sort of, you know, rainbow nation and Mandela, the black president. And the lady who brought in the tea was the lady who would bring in the tea to the previous president, the white guy, President de Klerk. And he had not, hadn't even crossed his mind to fire these people. He said, no, we want all these people on board. Furthermore, they know how the presidential office runs. Let's not squander their skills. And I remember when this lady brought in the, the tea and, and left, you know, he, he marveled at how readily she had accepted him as president and how respectful she was towards him as president. But at the same time, what a cordial relationship personally the two of them were already developing. You know, he found that something worth pointing out in the middle of a, you know, highly significant interview. His, like I say, his first one with the foreign press after he becomes president, in which he's laying out his goals and aspirations and the pitfalls that he sees. So he had, you know, every now and again, he deviated into this um, sort of warm personal touch, but it was unusual.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the things I really appreciate about the book is I think it's very balanced. You know, I think you give voice to, you know, the right wing quite powerfully. Uh, there's a great character, uh, General Constant Villun, um, yeah. who, who gets a lot of time in the book. Uh, and I felt that was that was really quite important. I mean, I, I love books where the personalities drive the story anyway. And that's one another aspect that I really loved about it. But, you know, was that part of your strategy that, to make sure that you, you, you got other voices in there? It wasn't just this, this you know, one take on it. I'm not sure it was um, it was a strategy. It would be to, probably to, to, to afford too much a forethought to me to to think in terms of me, you know, setting out a, a strategy like a general before battle. I sort of tend to deploy my troops as we go along. Um, so in the case of the general, I think it wasn't so much a sort of literary strategy as more of a kind of personal response to the fact that I found the interview I did with him just particularly moving and um, surprising and exemplary and a very, very, very powerful example of Mandela's capacity to persuade. Like I said a minute ago, you know, Mandela's genius was in political leadership. Political leadership means persuading people to, to follow you. In the case of Mandela, he persuaded his bitterest enemies to follow him. And General Constant Fildun, you know, had set himself up as the leader of the far-right counter-revolutionary or counter-counter-revolutionary forces that were going to overthrow democracy. You know, he was... Um, the sort of Darth Vader of, of Mandela's, you know, democracy project. And Mandela absolutely won him over, wooed him. And, and the general ended up, I, I left my interview with the general thinking that he was half in love with Mandela. And that just struck me as something so powerful and so telling, so revealing of, of Mandela more than anything else that I, I had to give the guy a significant presence and weight in the book. He's an amazing character, and I wonder, as I was reading these interviews, and there's other huge personalities like Justice Becky Becky, fantastic character in the book, yeah. but I wonder about timing as well, and I wonder about the fact that there had been a passage of time between these events and then you doing these interviews. Do you think that benefited the fact that it was maybe years down the line, they had had the opportunity to reflect on all these experiences from a personal point of view, but also, also globally and societally, you know, they they'd they'd reached their conclusions about what had happened uh, in South Africa at that time. Yeah, I think that's correct because I think on the one hand, the 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 the, the memories of of that time and the, and that Rugby World Cup uh, remained very vivid in, in people's minds. It was such a big moment, and you know the emotions were very easy to sort of rekindle, even you know ten years after the fact. But at the same time, having that perspective that time brings provided a very nice, a very nice and useful blend for me of you know thoughtful reflection and, like I say, vivid 
vivid emotions. I just want to, I want to give you a quote from Simon Cooper here, which is um, a review of the book, and he says, a book that captures the miracle of Mandela the politician. This is not a sports book. This is, above all, the work of a great reporter. Now, to me, that, that was really significant because... Obviously, in so many ways, you're strategically placed to, to, to write this book because you spent, you know, the six years as bureau chief of the Independent. So I, I imagine you lived through and worked through a lot of this stuff as it was happening. Do you think that was a huge part of, of being able to bring that authority to the book that you did? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, had I had I not spent those six years, absolutely critical, transformative years in, in South Africa with, as I just said a moment ago, with a front row seat at the, mm. at the whole pol- this amazing political spectacle. Had I not had that experience behind me, had I just parachuted in, you know, say I'm living in London and decide to come in and spend two or three months in South Africa, ten years after the fact doing the story, I think I would have I would have really struggled to give it the same the same context and possibly, as you say, the same authority. Obviously I drew very heavily in the book from my own reporting experience which was incredibly rich and varied in South Africa and so I had that that sort of weight of of background of context on which I superimposed all the many interviews that I did with lots of people who were you know among the protagonists of of that rugby world cup. In in terms of some of the the key events during that period I mean it strikes me that you were were probably at a lot of these like maybe the the release press conference where you you talk about the journalists breaking into the spontaneous round of applause that we should never seen before and you know stuff like the Uppington 14 Mm. I was looking at that and I was thinking I think John's there. Oh totally there no the Uppington 14 case was a very 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 powerful moment for me I'd only been in South Africa for four or five months. I was still finding my feet. I still didn't quite get it. And, and that experience of covering the Uppington 14 trial really closely, I must have gone, gone down to Uppington from Johannesburg at least four times to cover the trial, including for the, the, the death sentences that came at the end of it. And um, that was, uh, yeah, that was incredibly, incredibly powerful stuff. And I was, I was very, very, very present and very emotionally engaged, never mind just as a reporter. And sure, yes, I was there on the day of Mandela's release, and I was there for that first press conference. In fact, I asked a question at that press conference, which was quite a privilege. Only about eight or nine people got a chance to ask a question. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, 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 I was the busiest um, and most exciting time of my life. And I gathered, you know, stories and anecdotes and, and people in, in huge abundance and, and variety. That is part of what raises this book to another level there's a there's a tiny line just in the Uppington 14 section and when the, the verdict comes and you see those words a small man at the back of the court muttered Amen yeah. and it's just a tiny detail but it puts you there and it, and it, under, you know, it conveys to the reader that sense of authority um, th- those little details are important aren't they in just elevating something oh yeah no I think I think in, in any, any kind of book you need those those little anecdotes, those little moments that lend the story authority and bring atmosphere and authenticity. You know, be it a novel or be it nonfiction, I think that um, just you know having having the eye for those for those critical moments and and then writing them down, I think is is awfully important. Yeah. There was another one I picked out 
around about that section where um, you're talking about the Pabalello township. Uppington is the adjacent white town. So this this is where Justice Becky Becky is from, uh, Pabalello. And you talk about Pabalello being the black shadow of Uppington, which is a lovely line. Um, but but there's this, this journey from Pabalello to Uppington, which you see is like travelling from suburban Buckinghamshire into Burkino Faso. But you actually break yes. down the journey and you talk about you drove about a mile on the road west towards Namibia until you reached the munici- municipal slaughterhouse. That's you, right. Amazing. You, turn, you, you, you amazing. couldn't make it up. You couldn't make it up. <laughs> I know. It's incredible. But then you turn left and before you stood a, stood a rusting sign that read, Welcome to Pabalello. So yeah. I presume you're making that trip then. You're, you, you know, you, you're going there with a... Oh, yeah. Not all the time. Details. Yeah. I was, go- of course, I was going back and forth doing that all the time. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote this a long time ago, but yeah, the contrast between the, you know, this place was basically in the desert. It was on the fringes of the Kalahari Desert, but the white town of Uppington was just full of trees and lawns and flowers and and uh, and light and, and birds singing. And you go to Pavlela and everything was sort of monochrome. Everything was a kind of generally brown color. There were no trees, there were no birds singing. Uh, the contrast, just in terms, just visually, was just you know, never mind the relative poverty, was um, quite extraordinary. I mean, but there again, this was not untypical. I mean, this was this was the way it was all over South Africa. You had, you know, time and again. You know, when it, obviously, if you're in Johannesburg, everything's a bit more diffuse. But when you left Johannesburg and went to these smaller towns, you know, Uppington was and Pabalela were entirely typical. You had you had the white town, which is always, you know, prosperous and green and and flourishing, and um, and then you know a mile or so down the road was where the where the black people lived in in, um, in this kind of you know drab and like I say monochrome little townships. Yeah, you mentioned that the the townships aren't even on the map; it's just the, the white towns that are on on the maps. Yeah, um, which is amazing. And um, tell us a little bit about the reaction to the book. So the book comes out. What what was the critical reaction? Was it was was the book a commercial success? What was the ripple effect from 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 the writing of this book? Well, it was it was great. I mean, I had um, extraordinarily good reviews. You mentioned Simon Cooper in the Financial Times. I got a fabulous review in the New York Times by actually by the guy who was then the editor of the New York Times, but had been correspondent in South Africa at the same time as me, the New York Times bureau chief there, so he knew his stuff. And fairly unanimously, I think there was, except for one, um, there was a, a, a review in the Sunday Times by oh, this professor whose name I forget now, who persisted in the idea that Mandela was just some kind of a buffoon and <laughs> It was just very, very strange. But, I mean, it was very, yes, it was certainly very rewarding in terms of the, the fabulous reviews the book got. And um, it was translated into many languages. I couldn't tell you precisely how many, but at least a dozen. And then, of course, you know, the amazing, you know, unbelievable development that it ended up being a Hollywood film. Thanks to John for his time. Listen out for tomorrow's episode on Invictus, which contains the most astonishing story that we have ever featured on Between the Lines. It involves John and a chance meeting with Morgan Freeman in America's Deep South. As always, we'd love for you to leave a review and please sign up to the Backpage mailing list, the link to which is in the show notes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com 
is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.